Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Carolyn Eichner, author of Feminism's Empire. Carolyn teaches history and women's and gender studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She is the author of Surmounting the Barricades and the Paris Commune. Carolyn shared with us her research documenting the major role that feminism played in the development of 19th century French anti-imperialism, the important role that race played in feminist thought and activism of the time, and some of the most memorable stories of the five prominent French feminists she profiles in her new book. Hello, Carolyn. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, we're glad to be talking to you about your new book, Feminism's Empire. Just came out. And uh, before we start, I guess as an introduction, I'd love to hear you read the passage that starts chapter two. All right. Crossing the Rocky Mountains, Olympe Audois reported in 1871, quote, one finds oneself in Utah, a state colonized by the followers of Brigham Young. Frenchmen, unhappily for French women, also support polygamy. For those tempted to join the Latter-day Saints in order to benefit from this institution, I give a little charitable advice. In Salt Lake City, a man must feed all of the women he marries. Wives have the right of divorce, but the husband does not. He must give his name and bread to all of his children. Frenchmen, so accustomed to taking pleasures without any inconveniences, would undoubtedly miss the Napoleonic Code, which grants men complete impunity for all their bad passions. <laughs> I thought that was great. That was so funny and spot on too. Um, so, so tell me, you know, this is just going to go the segue to the feminists that you cover in your book. Tell us how this project came about. Tell us the backstory of, of this project. Okay, so my first book, uh, Surmounting the Barricades, Women in the Paris Commune, looked at uh, feminists and feminisms and feminist socialisms during the 1871 Paris Commune, which was a really tremendously influential revolutionary civil war in France. And doing that book, I was really looking at questions of gender and class. And so in, you know, as I was working in this project, especially as I was finishing it up and I was thinking, what about race? What about imperialism? Because these were questions that were becoming increasingly important in the latter half of the, the 19th century in France. And so I was thinking about what about feminists engaging with empire? And there uh, has been scholarship on this in the British context for a few decades, but there was virtually none um, when I started this project. And when I finished this project, not that much more. But um, so I was looking then for the first few feminists to engage with empire, to go into empire, not just to even think about it, but to go into empire either physically, which was the case with four of these women, or literarily and, and with her imagination, uh, which is one of them, Leonie Rouzad. And I was interested both in their ideologies and their embodied experiences. So what the, you know what that meant, what the experiences of, of 
traveling into empire and not just the French empire, but the imperial, the larger imperial world, which would include like the metropole, Turkey, of Russia, but imperial and imperializing contexts. And so I found these five women um, from ranging from around the 1860s into the end of the century. But by the end of the century, there's much more of this. And uh, they fall, and this was kind of a, a lucky thing for me, they fall on an ideological range from left to right in terms of different kinds of feminisms. And this is something really important to me um, in, my, in my work and it, including in my, my first book, Surmounting the Barricades, is about the multiplicities of feminisms that existed in France in the uh, 19th century. Oftentimes if I'm speaking to someone and I say something about feminism in 19th century France, they're so surprised and, it's, and I'll say, no, there are, were many kinds of feminisms and many conflicting types, um, intersecting types. So um, these five women fall on a range from on the far left, the revolutionary um, anarchist feminist Louise Michel, to on the far right, which is really a center right, it's a relative thing, um, Olympe Audouin, who was a royalist, but also had um, like had Republican ideas and idea the like for the, the republic the, the Republic of France, not the United States idea of republicanism. Um, so, you know, much more conservative with the others falling along that range as um, more uh, Republican socialist feminists who were not revolutionary, but advocated legislative change and moved towards socialism. And uh, Paula Mink, who's the, sort of the second to the left, which uh, who was a revolutionary socialist feminist. Um, and so, and then later as the project developed, I started to focus on other themes, you know, kind of emerged from the sources, emerged from looking at their writings and writings about them. And, and that's when really this question of pro versus anti-imperialism emerged. And also the figure of the Jew and anti-Semitism. This is not something I intended to write about going into it, but it really emerged from the sources because they spoke they use this idea, this figure of the Jew so often for political reasons. Um, and then questions of law, intimacies, education, translation and orality and linguistics are all really significant themes that emerged as I did the project. Wow, wow. So it's fascinating to hear, you know, there's uh, left-wing, right-wing feminism and, uh, but all of them, all of these feminisms playing a major role in developing this 19th century French anti-imperialism. But this anti-imperialism is a complicated mix. There's, there's, there's a lot of contradictions. It's very complex. Tell us the, the nuanced view from your research. Okay, so all of the feminists were opposed to existing imperial programs. That so the imperialism as it existed, they all thought it was exploitative and wrong. And you know, essentially, for all of them, there was a moral question about you know the the right of of, of a, a state doing this to another state or uh, group or community. But at the same time, they all, to varying degrees and really differing degrees, saw in imperialism a potential form to bring about change and to bring about even progressive change, especially through a kind of a feminist imperialism. And so only two of the feminists were self-identified anti-imperialists. 
and that's Louise Michelle and Paula Mank. And um, especially Louise Michelle, who was really vociferous about it. Well, Paula Mank was pretty vociferous about it too. And, and Michelle thought that a little Western education could be beneficial for helping indigenous peoples develop and evolve. And for her, it was very specifically the Kanak people in New Caledonia, which was a French prison colony to which she was exiled after the 1871 Paris Commune that I mentioned earlier. So, I mean, she's so anti-imperialist and yet, she, well, at the same time, she talks about learning from the Canucks. She's like, Western education. And she also referred to them as childlike and occasionally savage. But compared to pretty much everyone else in her era, she saw them as people and as people with a culture and a culture with value and language. And, and so from my perspective, it was virtually impossible, or if not impossible, for, for someone, even with the most progressive values and ideas and the, the most openness, to actually fully escape the ideas, all of the ideas of the era, especially the, these rooted in race and ideas of civilization. She didn't think that white people were superior, but she thought that they had advanced more rapidly. And, that, and this is, she's not alone in that. But she puts a lot of value in the in the in the Kanak, and yet she still is infantilizing towards them. And and so basically, in what I you know come to argue is that the the binary between anti-imperialist and pro-imperialist in this period is impossible. There is no clear binary that everyone is falling on a range because people cannot extract themselves from their time period. Um, one of my pet peeves is when people say that uh, someone is ahead of their time. You can't be ahead of your time. You are of your time. You may think more openly or more progressively than other people in your time, but everyone is of their time. And, uh, and that sort of became very starkly clear in this uh, project. Interesting. Yeah, that's tough to be able to, knowing what we know now, to be able to look back and be sympathetic with views that today we would we would be horrified by but the time exactly. as you were saying at that time you know michelle was super progressive and that's it, as a historian it's vital to not put our contemporary uh standards and understandings onto people in the past because yeah. they they did not have the benefit of, of of what we think of what our understandings are I mean, you can certainly label things racism, anti-Semitism, misogyny. Sure. Absolutely. And even you know, with feminisms, the word feminism didn't come into use until the 1880s. And I explained this in the book, and I explained this in anytime I've used feminism in this way, that I it's not anachronistic, it's labeling something that had no label, but it's it is consistent with these ideas of gender equity and um, an efforts to end uh, a kind of a gender hierarchy and sexist and misogynist practices and structures. So the thing that I found really interesting is that the contemporary Kanak in New Caledonia today see Louise Michelle in an extremely positive light. They are able to recognize that 
the derogatory terms she used towards them were, she was a, you know, a product of her time, but was so different in the way that she regarded them. And one of the key things was when she was in, she and 4,500 other um, communars, the, the revolutionaries of the Paris Commune were uh, deported to New Caledonia to the prison colony after this revolutionary civil war. And while they were there in 1878, uh, the Kanak rose up against the French and they had risen up against the French a number of times before and after. And um, she was the only communard to consistently side with the Kanak. Mm. The other communards, many of them even fought on the side of the French. And the French at the end of the, the Paris Commune 72 day conflict, the French army slaughtered about 15,000 Parisians in the streets of Paris during a week. So the antipathy towards this government was intense, but when it came down to it, when the Kanak people who are, but the, they're Melanesian, they're the, south, the Southern South Pacific, and so they're black. And so the French considered them like Sub-Saharan Africans to be the lowest of their um, colonized peoples. So when it came down to it, the other communard prisoners sided with whiteness and not with another oppressed group. Um, and while some of them had some sympathy, Michelle was the only one who consistently sided with the Kanak. And this is something that the contemporary Kanak, you know, really uh, value and recognize. Nice, nice. It, it, it lasts through history, that, yeah. that stance. Yeah, that's nice. Exactly. That's nice. So, so we've heard a little bit about Michelle. Tell us some other memorable stories of the other feminists that you feature in this book. Okay, um, well, um, Olympe Audouard, who's the most conservative of them, um, the one that the, the quote I read at the beginning, uh, she, you know, so she traveled to Russia, to uh, Egypt, to, to, she was in Jerusalem, she was in Turkey, she was in the, the, the kingdom of the Mormons, as uh, she termed it, um, and she crossed the United States, and so she was there right after the end of slavery in the, in the right after the, the, the civil war and speaking to people, um, she didn't travel to the American South, but she spoke to people about it, including some formerly enslaved people. And she was extremely interested in law. And um, with the exception of um, Louise Michelle, uh, the other feminists were quite interested in law and Paula Meg also not as interested because of the revolutionary politics that you know thought the whole system had to go um, and and didn't have this kind of value in legal structures um, but but for the other three they really did and they saw law as a way of really understanding a society and trying to change law as a way of bringing emancipation so Edouard always she would study the law of a place before she went uh, to it and so she saw uh, anti-miscegenation laws in the United States and so when she was writing about enslaved women, and one thing she and all of these other feminists did was to compare what the legal situation and social situation was for women in different places in France. So when she saw what she believed that white men and black women, you know, could not, um, you know, even have sex, let alone be married, she thought that this protected that bodily protected black women from white men. And so when comparing the situation of enslaved black women and married white French women, she said that in some ways enslaved black women had had it better because she spoke about that, you know, in the evening after working in the fields or in the house, they could go to their hut and 
have privacy and time to themselves and that they could that they the one thing that they had was the right to say no to um to sex and that french married women did not have their right there's no concept of marital rape in the napoleonic code that men were men a man had by law access to his wife's body and so she thought because the law said that white women white men and black women could not have sex that's this meant that um black women were not sexually exploited. So this sort of extraordinary misunderstanding was really, really profound. She also had a really idealized view of the United States in general, and this fit into it. And so this idealized view of the US and kind of an overemphasis on the, the, the word of the law and a misunderstanding of it really shaped um, her misunderstanding of that context. So uh, for uh, Ubertino Claire, so she, she's, um, was the the next farthest right though she's she's a, a socialist she's a republican socialist she believes in the vote she is the motor of the french women's suffrage movement which was minuscule in the later 19th century compared to the us or england she had money and an intense drive um and she started a newspaper called la citoyenne which is the woman citizen and the main goal was women's suffrage but she also was really interested in the situation of women around the world and also in, in imperialism. And she started editing and writing for this newspaper and funding it when she lived in France. And then um, a few years later, uh, her uh, partner, who she did not want to legally marry uh, for a number of reasons, because of the this, mainly she didn't want to be under the, the Napoleonic Codes, the way that you know wives were basically lost all of their freedoms and uh, she was also opposed to uh, taking a patronym she was an advocate of women maintaining their um, birth names and so but uh, ultimately her partner was uh, being sent to algeria for to, was posted there he was a a, a lawyer and um and he was he had tuberculosis and he was dying and so she she married him and went to algeria and then became even more interested in questions of imperialism and um so she so the newspaper really really reflected that and uh she had a kind of a core group of male feminists and female feminists writing for this newspaper and so this is this was a a 10-year project that she really uh, kept going wow very cool, very cool. Yeah, and then let, okay, moving on to Leonie Rosad, and she's um, the one, and her politics are very similar to Eau Claire's Republican Socialist Feminist. And uh, Rosad is the one who did not physically go into empire, but literarily and creatively did. And she was a novelist and she wrote uh, kind of a fantasy fiction. Um, she's actually uh, some, science fiction aficionados now look back at her as a science fiction writer because she wrote a number of kind of futuristic um, stories. And uh, the one that I, I'm interested in is called uh, Le Monde Renversé, or the, the World Turned Upside Down, in which a European, a beautiful young European woman is basically captured by pirates at sea and taken to a, an unnamed sultanate um as a prisoner and it's clear this place is muslim and 
she gets there and she is able through her intelligence and beauty and you know wiles to uh take over and she takes over the society and she flips the gender hierarchy thus the the world you know the world turned upside down and she does it in a way like like completely so that men have all the disempowerment that women in france and she's you know using this as a, an example to to show the, the situation in France and um, and that women have all the power and people are, you know, going nuts because, you know, the men are like, you know, this is absurd. How could this be? And she's making this point. And um, and then, you know, and then ultimately she it develops, she's kind of lays out the plans for this to become a democratic republic uh, and with fit where 50% of the legislature will be women and 50% of the legislature will be men, which foreshadows the French, the, the, the 2002 French law parité, where, which, where the goal ultimately is a 50-50 split in the legislature. And, um, and then she you know, dramatically kills herself with an, the heir apparent to the throne. So to get rid of him and to get rid of the, the, the non-democratic leader and then leaves this country as a you know true democratic republic so um that's uh that sounds like a good book it it, it really is it's really very i mean and, and and this is this is 1870 she is uh i believe she's the first uh leftist the first socialist to really write about imperialism um uh, man or woman, and um, I mean, you know, she's she's doing this, you know, through the this fictional story. But she's uh, her interest in this is is really you know cutting edge. Nice, nice. And then uh, we can move to Paul Mick, and yep. um, she's a revolutionary socialist feminist, second from the left, so to speak. And she. She is. Uh, she was involved in the Paris Commune. She's very well known in France in the 1870s and 80s as a revolutionary socialist. She is flamboyant, speak a speaker, very committed. Uh, and um, when I was doing research on her uh, for my first book, there was a year-long gap in the archives. It was in, in the in the mid 1880s. It was like there was because the the parrot the, the French police followed her. If she was a threatening, dangerous character. And they followed her every day of her life from the time that she you know, came back from exile after the commune to her death um, at the turn of the century. And there was a gap and I, and there was, and, and ultimately I you know, tracked it down, tracked it down and figured out that she was in Algeria for a year. Mm -hmm. So she went to Algeria on a anti-imperialist, anti-military, anti-clerical propaganda tour. And um, she was there for a year. And um, the, as she went from, from city to city, newspapers would announce her arrival. There are some accounts of her, of her talks and the way that people, Europeans and Algerians came to them. But then there was, I, I found a, a book published by missionaries, a couple of missionaries who in their sort of story of their experience there spoke of their, how horrified they were that this terrible, dangerous woman was also there and they apologized to their readers for even mentioning her and how she was basically spoiling their potential converts by saying all of these negative things about religion and 
it was a pretty impressive document showing how afraid they were of her influence and you know what that influence was and so it's pretty it's extremely interesting to me that this kind of had disappeared from the historical record given how significant what it was and how it shaped her uh, subsequent politics interesting do you know if she was followed by the algerian police or the you know the french authorities in algeria i assume I, that's i mean that's a, a great question and i hadn't found any evidence of that but i it, it is actually possible that she was and i just didn't find the evidence that's a great yeah. question wow well, yeah. very uh yeah re revolutionary socialist as you're saying you know she's a rabble rouser and um but also you know raising consciousness as well exactly exactly that was it that was her goal to you know to go and to talk about the ways in which imperialism was exploitative the ways uh, to which i mean her her anti-clericalism was you know from her teens and, and this was a pretty central thing to a lot of the french left um in the period after 1848 a number of things changed um and but she extended it to any kind of organized religion you know as did louise michelle um and, and that they were just really opposed to any organized religion so she was anti-clerical in a broader sense to a, a an audience of mixed of, of muslims and christians and probably jews also um I, I don't really know much about the composition of the audience besides audiences besides that you know they were in european attire and algerian attire the way mm -hmm. the newspapers described them nice nice wow well these are great stories and i know that there's many many more fleshed out in your new book feminism's empire it's just out now available on our website and all bookstores around the world it was a pleasure talking with you carolyn it was a pleasure talking with you jonathan thank you so much thank you take care that was carolyn eichner author of feminism's empire you can follow carolyn on twitter at eichner carolyn if you'd like to purchase Carolyn's new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>